I'm told uh, in the mid to early days of the Cold War, as uh, the new government in Cuba became increasingly aligned with the Soviet Union, that the United States became increasingly anxious about that association uh, 90 miles off the coast of Florida and uh, enlisted the aid of the U-2, a spy plane, to fly uh, a dizzying list of missions over Cuba and blanket the country with photographs. And uh, as a staff of people in uh, Langley poured through all these photographs looking at what was taking place in Cuba, they uncovered a number of construction projects in various parts of the country that there was apparently a movement afoot to build a number of soccer fields. There was a huge increase in the number of soccer fields, north, south, east, west, soccer fields all over the place. And finally, one sharp analyst in his office one day thought to himself, Cubans play baseball. Cubans don't really play soccer. I mean, not like they play baseball. They became increasingly aware that a sudden increase of soccer fields is not very Cuban. It's out of character. And that combined with some other intelligence information led them to conclude that these soccer fields were soccer fields uh, that were really part of uh, military establishments Um, working towards setting up missiles, and so the the Cuban Missile Crisis unfolded. Um, Who knows if the story is true? Um, I certainly thought it was interesting as an example of something that sticks out because it's it's out of character. It was, in fact, more obvious to analysts in Washington, D.C. that it would be out of character than it perhaps was to the... Russians and the Cubans themselves, I'm sure they were thinking, well, we, we got them all licked. We'll just make these things look like soccer fields. That it is more easy than we imagine to do and live and act in a way that's really out of character. It's not really ourselves. What I think is going on in this passage in James is he's pointing out the tension that... Um, that all of us are a product of our culture. Um, That's not sort of a a slam. It's just a statement of what culture is. One person has described culture as sort of the operating system that we all operate on, like a computer software, that every culture has a set of values and traditions and language and words, and we sort of interact with the world out of that culture. Well, the gospel has a culture of its own. And so if you're a Christian, a believer in Christ, and you have the Holy Spirit in you, you are being transformed more and more into the values of that culture. In fact, I think what Christianity does to a person, individually and to a culture collectively, is really to make it more and more themselves that um, from the standpoint of the gospel, we're all made in God's image with dignity. And uh, apparently God likes diversity and variety because there's a lot of it in the world. 
And so every culture has strengths and beauties and things that it communicates to the world about the glory of God. And yet we're all individually and collectively broken people. Francis Schaeffer said that from the standpoint of the gospel, all human beings are like ruined cathedrals. That we have the remaining vestiges of this glory and yet it's ruined in the darkness of sin. So to be transformed into the values of the kingdom really means to become more and more who you were really meant to be, to become more yourself. And yet there's still the remaining corruption that comes from being a sinful person. And for all of us, that's partly informed by the culture in which we live in. And so I believe that James is using the sin of partiality, his very earthy example of asking a rich person to sit in the front row and asking a beggar to sit in the back or maybe on the floor, is contrasting that with the values of the kingdom, of Jesus' kingdom, what I'm going to call the upside-down kingdom, because those values are, are different from the values of our culture, from the values of the world. And inviting us to recognize that tension, that he's looking and he's saying, you're not being yourselves. You're being inconsistent with who you're made to be. And then he spins that out and explains why. So what I want us to see today is what the values of the upside-down kingdom really are, who it is that you're really meant to be, what it is that the Lord values, what we're made to value, and for us to become more and more aware of the parts of each one of us that are really more reflective of the values of the kingdom of this world than who we really are. James uses this example to make that discussion. But I went through and I picked out all of the sort of adjectives and descriptors he uses about the kingdom he's describing, the kingdom of the world, and the upside-down kingdom, and I put them in two separate lists. See if this is, helps illustrate what James is after. Those who practice the values of the kingdom of the world, those who show partiality, do these sorts of things. They focus on outward appearances, on clothing and people. They practice partiality. They oppress and drag to court. They blaspheme Jesus' name. And from everything we can tell from historical records at that time, the Romans, like many cultures, prized power and status. And so most of the blaspheming of Jesus' name took place in the context of them saying, Jesus got killed. That's ridiculous. No qualified leader would be killed. And so they blaspheme and shame Jesus because of his lack of power. The values of the world focus on the law and legalism. They practice judgment. They make distinctions with evil hearts, and they show no mercy. Sort of extrapolate the way James describes the sort of heart that puts a rich person in the front row, those are the sorts of things that he's thinking about. 
that's why I think what he's really he's talking about the sin of partiality, but he's using it as a tool to get at our worldview and what we value. He contrasts that with the values of the upside down kingdom. What he suggests instead is that you love your neighbor as yourself, that you live and practice humility, that you live out of the law of liberty. And we talked last time how James uses the law of liberty in distinction to the law. That the law is sort of a bar that you have to meet, and if you didn't make it, well, it sucks to be you. You didn't make it. Whereas the law of liberty is for those who have been welcomed and received mercy, and it's offered in freedom to give us the advice and the direction we need to become whole and healthy people. People in the upside-down kingdom love their neighbors, their self. They live in humility. They live under the law of liberty. They practice mercy. They are rich in faith. They love God. And they know they have an inheritance coming from God. This is just my quick survey of the ways that James describes these two worldviews in this passage. And uh, focusing on the first list, what stands out to me is that almost all of those characteristics are focused on other people. It's, it's a worldview of law and comparisons. You focus on outward appearances, you practice partiality, you oppress and drag to court, you focus on law and legalism, you show no mercy, you make distinctions. It's the worldview of someone primarily focused on themselves and other people, and constantly comparing between themselves and other people and using the law as a means to put themselves above other people. Does that make sense? So we see a rich person and we say, that's someone who's made it. That's someone like me. That's someone I could get something out of. That's something that could advance me up the ladder. And we see a poor person or a beggar or Jesus and we say... That's someone who didn't make the cut in life. It's actually someone that, that I'm better than. Because there's a law and a standard, and I made it, and they, they didn't. And what naturally flows out of that worldview is what you value most is money and power. And if you think about it, money and power really are the same thing. Because money is really just a thing you use to get other people to do for you what you want. And uh, it's not pretty to describe starkly that way, but in a lot of ways, that really is the way the world works. There's a lot that makes sense about that. You want to hire people that do a good job? You don't want to hire people that don't do a good job. You want to have high standards, encourage people to, to meet them. To, to do their best. But it's a worldview that ultimately leads to death. In contrast, the upside-down kingdom is upside-down because it actually values the opposite things. It's focused, rather than on people, it's focused on God and on his mercy and love for us. That... A member of the upside-down kingdom 
loves their neighbor as themselves. They're humble. They receive with thanksgiving the law of liberty. They practice mercy. They're rich in faith. They love God. It's a person fundamentally oriented towards the Lord. Their, their focus, rather than being on other people in comparisons, is on him and what they've received from him. And out of that flows love and mercy. We could probably add peace and patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control, all the fruits of the Spirit. That's where those things come from. This passage is remarkably similar in content to the Beatitudes. The teachings of Jesus where he says, Rich are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom. All those sorts of things. He, in a very similar way, outlines what's valuable. Or put differently, what makes a rich person in the kingdom of the world is money and power, and what makes a poor person is a lack of money and power and success. But in the upside-down kingdom, what makes a wealthy person is someone who's rich in mercy and relationship and attachment to the Lord and love and humility is what makes for a genuinely wealthy person that's well-to-do. And what makes for poverty is envy and arrogance, a focus on the law, oppressing and dragging to court. She might have money and power, but in the eyes of the kingdom, you're a poor person. These are, of course, not absolute categories. Um, A survey of the Bible and even James' own teaching, I think, makes clear that God is not opposed to money as such. Abraham was a wealthy person. David was a wealthy person. But what James is doing is he's adopting the teaching style of Jesus, who also happened to be his brother. And Jesus loved to make things clear by drawing clear distinctions. And while it might not be true that wealth is inherently evil, at least in Jesus's and James' mind, there's a strong correlation. That when you're a poor person... In the eyes of the world, it's much easier for you to apprehend, see, feel, and understand your spiritual poverty. Uh, Your interpersonal and moral poverty, and in that to receive grace and thereby to become a rich person. Likewise, when James says we're not to make distinctions, he can't mean that we're not, not to make any distinctions because he's making a distinction. You've always got to ask with James, well, what, what does he mean by his words? And he's meaning a specific kind of distinction. That we fall into sin and into the values of the world when we make distinctions based on the value system of our culture, the value system of the world, the value system of money and power, as opposed to mercy and grace. Also on a orientation mostly focused on people and other people rather than on the Lord. Uh, When I first got revived in college, uh, I was really fortunate to have a minister in my life who wanted to get together with me regularly. We got together 
for several years, almost once a week. And I'd have a chance to ask him questions, and he'd pray for me and ask me questions and encourage me in various ways. And uh, a few weeks into our meeting, I wish I could remember what he asked me about, but he asked me about some category of my life or something that I was struggling with. How's this going? Are you having a hard time with that? And my immediate thought, and what I actually said was, how do you know that about me? That his insight into my life and my struggles, which came in a, in a direct but welcoming and loving, safe kind of way, exposed what I had always known about myself and had tried to keep secret from other people and figured that I had been pretty successful. No one knows that about me. And having known me a couple weeks, he was like, boom! So I said, how did you know that about me? And he responded in typical confident pastor style. Well, I read the Bible. (laughs) And I had no idea what he meant by that. But now I know that when you read the Bible, it gives you a set of kingdom values and a snapshot of who human beings really are. That we are all broken and needy people in need of mercy, and some of us have received it. And it sets you free to not be dazzled by money and power or anything else that the world sees as valuable. That in a loving way, it frees you from being impressed and enslaved by that. That you can see that and just say, nah, there's a better way to live. Last week, um, Todd and I ended up taking a sudden trip to visit Presbyterian, California. And um, it was uh, like a, a Thursday, a flight from Honolulu to San Jose. It's not a heavily booked flight. And uh, Simone was kind of embarrassed to admit this, but I got upgraded to first class. <laughs> it's awesome up there. Uh, I did not buy a ticket in first class. I didn't even pay for the upgrade, but I've done enough flying between here and California that I guess they were going to put me up there. So they put me up there, and I was just like overwhelmed by how awesome this is the whole way over there. Maybe because I come from a blue-collar family and didn't fly until I was 17 or whatever, but like the whole way, it's like five-hour flight. Would you like more food? Would you like more snacks? Can I get anything for you? This is an amazing experience. And across the row from me uh, was uh, two young ladies uh, from the Bay Area in California, and they got on the plane at the last minute and were pissed that the luggage compartment was full. And then row one, so they can't put the luggage in their feet, so there was a major fight with the flight attendants about where the luggage was going to go. The flight attendants like, I'll, I'll totally, I'll bring it back to you as soon as we take off. They were not satisfied. We got up in the air. They were not satisfied with the drink options. We got the food. They're not satisfied with the food. And about 30 minutes into the flight, I, I, I began to get the picture. There's this warm, heated, radiating energy of anger coming out of the seat next to me, which did not subside through the entire flight. And... Um, 
towards the end, I, I went up and chatted with the flight attendants for a while because for whatever reason, flight attendants are the most interesting people in the world to talk to. <laughs> Especially when you're a pastor because they really get people. And I was like, thank you guys so much. And they were like, you get it. And I was like, well, I used to work in customer service. I, you know, and so then they had this conversation. They said, you know, most people are pretty sweet most of the time, but there's, you know, some people, there's just no pleasing them. And, you know, as a flight attendant, you either accept that and you just sort of take it in stride or you get bitter and angry and you quit one way or the other. It was just this picture of me. You can have all the stuff in the world. All the power, the ability to drop a seat in first class without thinking about it. I'm sure they had an awfully nice room in Waikiki. And these were bitter, angry people. And in the gospel, that makes sense. Um, Not that those things aren't nice, but they, they can't ultimately give you the sort of grace, peace, love, and mercy that make for a beautiful, peaceful life. Gospel sets us free to not be dazzled by what the world is dazzled by. Instead, it invites us to be dazzled with true glory. If you take a look at verse 1 in this passage, before he even begins, starts talking about the rich man and the beggar, James begins this way. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith In our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. This verse is um, one of several tremendously awkward, complicated verses in Greek in James. And literally translated, it says, Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ of the glory. And it's really hard to know what to do with that of the glory part. So these translators sort of gave up and inserted Lord, uh, the Lord of glory. But in the Greek, there's a lot of reason to think that the most sensical way to read that is this. Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The glory. In other words, Jesus is the glory as you hold our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, glory, that he himself is the embodiment of glory, which makes complete sense from what we read in the, next, the rest of the New Testament. Paul in Colossians says the, he is the embodiment of of all of the fullness of God, his exact image and representation, that if you want to know what God looks like in his blazing glory, it looks like Jesus. We find a little bit about glory from the Old Testament as well. In Exodus 33, Moses has been uh, leading the people of Israel through the desert for some time, and he's frustrated, worn out, And he needs some encouragement. And uh, he's bold, which is what I like about a lot of the leaders in the Bible. And so he just says, Lord, I'm going to need to see your glory here. I'm so worn out. I need to see some glory. And the Lord's like, okay. 
So this is what we read towards the end of Exodus 33. The Lord said to Moses, This very thing you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all of my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh, which means I am. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you will see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And then a few verses later, we hear the description of that actually happening. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed, The name of Yahweh. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, I am, I am, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. So when Moses asks to see the glory of the Lord, what he gets in response is this paragraph-long name primarily about his mercy and his graciousness and his steadfastness and his loving kindness. And yes, he makes distinctions. I will no, by no means pardon the guilty, those who don't repent. But it's a distinction made within mercy. And his ultimate goal is to show mercy. And it's clear that Moses understands that because he immediately worships and gives thanks, asks the Lord that he would be with them. And is sort of in this immediately humble state, we're stiff-necked people. We're going to need you to go with us. That is the glory of the Lord. And so it makes sense when Jesus, the glory, shows up, he does things like welcome in beggars and comfort the downcast and the oppressed. That when he approaches Jerusalem, on a hill and looks at it, just like Bill mentioned earlier, what he says about them is, Jerusalem, I would have gathered you as a chicken gathers its hens under its wings. I actually saw that for the first time this morning. I've been reading about it all my life, and I saw it happen. Uh, Some of you guys have noticed, probably all of your children have noticed, that there's a chicken with a set of chicks running around the building, and uh, about half an hour before the service, I looked out the window, and there's the chick the chicken all puffed up with 14 legs. <laughs> and all you could see is the chicken's head and these wings and 
14 legs sticking out the bottom, that all of the chicks are warm, embraced, sheltered from the rain. And that is Jesus' own description of his nature and his glory. James begins the passage with that because he's reminding us the values of the kingdom of which we've received, who you really are, that you've received the glory of Jesus, which is to show mercy, that you yourselves have received mercy in a way that you did not deserve and been welcomed and loved. Your relationship with Jesus, you're a pair of those legs. sheltered from the storm. So why would you treat other people any differently? That's what James is saying. In fact, if you look at verse 4, he says, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives, evil thoughts? So I'm going to clarify this verse in two ways. The phrase, among yourselves really just is in you. So there's a lot of different ways you could understand that. But because both the rich person and the, and the beggar need to be shown where to sit, that tells me they're both visitors. And praise the Lord, the church gets visitors. So I think rather than among yourselves, as in you Christians are drawing distinctions among yourselves, I, would re- I think it really means within yourself. When visitors come in and you judge them, aren't you making distinctions in your heart? And the word here for distinctions is also the word from when we get discrimination. But it can also be translated, in fact, is usually dis- dis- translated as inconsistencies. So I'd read verse 4 this way. Have you not then been completely inconsistent in your heart when you make these judgments? You are a people who's received this kind of mercy, the kind of mercy that comes from the glory of Jesus. So why don't you live like that? Because to make these kind of distinctions based on money and power and comparing yourself to other people and what you can get out of other people is to fundamentally disagree with, undermine, and oppose the glory of the gospel itself. It's completely antithetical to the way that we have experienced Jesus. His comments where he starts talking about the law in the last section, I'll begin in verse 11. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. She's pointing out that if you live by those standards and judge in the form of the world, you better be prepared to receive that form of judgment yourself. But that's not the way it is in the kingdom of mercy. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. He's saying the values of the upside-down kingdom, the values of mercy and humility and welcoming in, are really just a better way to live. 
and all this about the glory and the presence of the Lord, my takeaway from that is that the, the antidote, if you're thinking, wow, this is me, I treat people this way, the antidote is to move your sight from focusing on other people and comparing yourself to them and move your sight towards the glory and take in the glory. Just like I talked about last Sunday, one of my favorite verses from 2 Corinthians, as we behold his image, we are being transformed into the same degree of glory from one degree to another. That if you find yourself to be a partial judgmental person, receive mercy. Gaze on the glory of Jesus. Spend time with the scriptures. Spend time in prayer. If you're married, you're going to need to support each other in this. That you're going to want to take time to spend scriptures, but you might also want to say, Honey, let me watch the kids this morning. Let me make breakfast so that you can go have some time to spend with the glory and be radiated on a little bit. Part of the antidote is to come to worship to worship the glory of Jesus and to receive his grace. It's what the whole worship service is for, the confession of sin, the assurance of pardon, the sermon, also communion. That uh, I might mess up the sermon, but if you come up and receive communion, it's hard to miss that you need something outside of yourself to survive. And that Jesus has provided it for you in a physical tangible way. I encourage you in all the Sundays since we started having you pick off bread, we haven't run out of bread yet. We haven't come close to running out of bread yet. So take a big piece. None of this little sort of crumb thing. I I need a big piece at least the size of my thumb so I can sit down and chew on it for a while. And that's why we as elders want to have this moment with you, looking you in the eye. This is grace and peace from Christ Jesus. It is that glory radiating on your soul, which is designed to change it and to bring it life. There's something healthy about focusing in, taking in everything out of that moment, and worshiping Jesus. I'll close with this uh, illustration. Uh, I've, I've used it a couple times before, but it really impacted me. I'm still rolling with it. When I was in seminary, I got to go spend two weeks with a ministry in Chicago called The Bridge. And The Bridge is like a draft for ex-cons into churches. Here's the situation. Lots of guys in prison get converted Because it's very clear to them that they are people in need. And they have a lot of time. And many of them spend time reading scripture, meditating, meeting with pastors. And they come out of prison, Christians on fire. And then have to go through the very difficult process of re-entering the world and actually finding a real church to be part of. 
And so they started this ministry in Chicago where every Tuesday night, all the ex-cons who become Christians and all the surrounding prisons are welcome to get together to this one room and they have a worship service together and they sing and encourage one another. And then a series of local pastors come and give the sermon each night. And what they're doing there is they're recruiting church members. Because these pastors have figured out that ex-cons are the best church members you could get. <laughs> they show up early. They stay up late. They're happy to clean up. They are super involved. And uh, it is the most welcoming place I have ever been. I got hugged. I got welcomed in and fed. Because it is a place overflowing with wealth. The wealth of the upside-down kingdom. That these people know their need and know the mercy they've received and they radiate it to other people. And my friends, that, that is you and me. In the eyes of the kingdom, we are all ex-cons. And in the gospel, I invite you to embrace ex-conness to receive that kind of mercy and to radiate it to the world that we might become the sort of place where anyone can walk in here and feel that welcome. Let's pray.